0: Hey everyone! It's the Now It's Dark movie podcast. I'm Mike, and I am Tim. And uh, hey, welcome back to yeah our Shining analysis. That's right. We are going to be continuing our talk and discussion and analysis of The Shining. So this is part two of our two-parter. If you are just starting to listen to this, welcome. If you have not listened to part one, you may want to go back and take a listen to that first. Otherwise, we are ready to get going. And as is the case for part one, know that there will be spoilers for The Shining up ahead.
1: And just want to make another reminder here that we do have a Patreon account set up. Uh, The links are below. You can find them. Uh, anything that you can afford to donate to support us uh, would be greatly appreciated. So
0: check that out below for more details. And of course, um, Christmas is all over as well. So I hope that you had a good holiday. Did you watch any fun Christmas movies this year, Tim? I watched um, I watched The Shining on Christmas Eve.
1: And on <laughs> Christmas Day, I watched The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh. <laughs> so two incredibly like violent
0: films. Oh, wow. Okay. What about you? Very nice. Uh, y- yesterday, on Boxing Day, I watched The Christmas Chronicles 2. <laughs> oh, that's nice and wholesome. <laughs> Very wholesome. The first one, though, is is really, it's quite fun and simple. You know, kids get involved in saving Christmas with Santa Claus, who's stuck in Boston. And the second one is, and there's like a bad guy who's a human, but he used to be an elf, and he has to steal something. And it's just, it's too, it's a bit too much. But the first right. one, at least, was fun.
1: Right. Well, today, as you mentioned, we're diving into part two of our Shining discussion. In part one, we really took an in-depth look at the Shining itself, the making of the movie. We looked at the novel, the pre-production, the release of the film, the reception to it. Today, we're going to dive more into kind of like the different interpretations that have been made of the film, the analysis of the film.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of those movies that you can just watch again and again and kind of get a little bit of a different take on things, even from watch to watch.
1: And I think as we got into at the end of last episode, that's really what divided a lot of critics and audiences about the film. They were fairly mixed upon its release. And they, you know, they didn't like the ambiguity. They didn't like the, the lack of resolution. But that, you know, precise ambiguity and lack of resolution, I think, is what led to the film being kind of resuscitated over the years and, and led to the reputation of the film growing. A, a big driving force behind this was, was technological. As uh, Jeremy uh, Swanowski at Senses of Cinema writes, quote, the, the Shining is tailor-made for a technology that was just arriving on the market in the late 1970s, being the ultimate film for the VCR age. And then, of course, mm. DVDs and streaming only made it easier to watch and re-watch The Shining and analyze every detail about it. So speaking of analysis, let's get into ours. Uh, today, we're going to start off the show by bringing in a special guest. This is a friend of the show, someone we've wanted to talk to for a long time, and he's going to give his own take on The Shining. He has some really interesting insights. After that, stay tuned because Mike and I are going to come back on and give a separate analysis on The Shining, which goes into some pretty interesting places involving, you know, why Kubrick used the steady cam, why there's so many continuity errors, and as well as some kind of other analysis involving like the weird uses of time and space in the film and, and other things. So stay tuned for that. We have lots of interesting insight to give. But for now, let's start off with our interview. So for the first time and Now It's Dark, we have a guest that we're going to bring in today. Uh, James Batcho is an assistant professor at the International College at Isho University in Taiwan, where he teaches courses in filmmaking, aesthetics, and storytelling. He's the author of two books. His latest is titled Terrence Malick's On Seeing Cinema. He has written for Media, Culture, and Society, Journal of Sonic Studies, the new soundtrack, Film Philosophy, Studies in European Cinema, Cosmos and History, Deleuze and Guattari Studies, and so many more. He's currently working on his latest book, Audibility, which is a philosophy of hearing and listening. And you can find out more information about his work at jimbatcho.com. So uh, welcome to the show, Jim.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here. I uh, love the show. I listen to it all the time. So happy to be here.
1: Yeah, your feedback is, has meant a lot to us. I, I know uh, in particular, uh, you said some really great things about the Joker episode mm. that we did, and uh, that I know that meant a lot to to us both.
2: Mm, good. That that was a great show you guys did there. I, I thought you got this. You guys did a really nice breakdown. Um, some of the thoughts that I was having as well. Just a really really good show there.
0: Thanks a lot, Jim. Hope that uh, everything is going okay in Taiwan as far as uh, COVID is concerned, and that you and yours are all staying safe.
2: Yeah, we're um very fortunate here because we haven't had to have a lockdown. So, it's pretty much freedom of movement in Taiwan. It, it means that I can't leave the country, but we're safe here. So, that's
0: What's your uh, current um, you know, cinema release like? Are you getting movies in the theaters these days?
2: Yeah, we are. I I check, I walk over there to our local theater, you know, just sort of like it's kind of like the neighborhood theater when I was a kid, you know, I walk over there. I could look it up online, but I like to just go over there. See what's playing, and we've got uh, Wonder Woman, and we've got Soul. I'm not so interested in Wonder Woman. I saw the first one; I thought it was fine, but I'm really uh, interested to see Soul.
1: Yeah, that actually that was at BIFF this year, the Busan oh, International yeah. Film Festival. I didn't get a chance to see it, but um, yeah, it, it definitely looks interesting. Pixar is always pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I Inside think. Out. They're always right. neat to look, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, infamously like Inside Out is the movie. I always mention that I like one of the, the most embarrassing moments when I cried watching a movie because it was oh, actually yeah. on an airplane back to <laughs> Canada and I just like didn't expect didn't expect it at all. I think it's the imaginary elephant or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh yeah, the floodgates open. It was it was very embarrassing.
2: Oh, it does that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually show that film in class as an example of script writing. Oh so the, cool. the opening scene, you know, um, with the birth, and um, I, I show them the the screenplay alongside showing them the scene, and it really helps them to sort of visualize how to write.
1: That's a really cool idea. I, I know, um, what is it, Up is also, mm-hmm. that montage at the beginning is also something that uh, a lot of people have referenced. It's just great, like, you know, economical storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, we're on the topic of The Shining today, and I think it's very appropriate that 2020 is the 40th anniversary of The Shining because it has kind of become the perfect lockdown film, the perfect quarantine film. And I found myself watching it and rewatching it this year in particular. I know uh, we were messaging back and forth. I rewatched it, I think, two days ago on Christmas Eve, and I think you rewatched it, what, yesterday or the day before?
2: Yeah, I watched it on Christmas night.
1: Wow. Yeah, perfect okay. Christmas movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you remember the first time that you actually saw The Shining and what your reaction to it was?
2: Oh, wow. Um, I don't remember the first time I saw it. I probably I was a big time horror movie buff. Back when I was, you know, thirteen, fourteen years old, doing a lot of babysitting and watching horror movies while babysitting, it might have come on cable at that time. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but it was—I do remember it being a big deal.
0: Do you? I mean, do you um, maybe remember what, at least what sort of made you really take to the movie in the first place?
2: Yeah, I think it was Jack Nicholson's character, um, and and the relationship with Danny. I think. Um, <laughs> This is going to sound a little odd, but Jack Nicholson, some of his looks in that movie have a striking resemblance to my dad. And the oh, way wow. my dad would sometimes look at me. <laughs> my dad was an amazing, amazing, wonderful, very giving person. But when he, you would disappoint him, he would sort of take on this Jack Nicholson look. And I wonder, maybe I'm just thinking of this right now, but if, if maybe he took on that look as a, sort of an, an intensity, you know, because it was right. it was part of the um, a big you know, cultural moment um, at the time that it was out and the aftermath of it being out. That really kind of elevated Jack Nicholson to a a, a different kind of realm where he was terrifying.
1: Yeah, it, it was, I was telling someone the other day, like, The Shining, in a weird way, is kind of like the subtext of a lot of family movies in the, you know, 80s and 90s brought to the forefront. You know, because yeah. I, I think it was what National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or something was on TV. And I was watching it with a few friends and I'm like, he just hates his family. <laughs> like Chevy Chase yeah. seems to hate his family. And so many movies in the 80s uh, and, and, you know, even before into the 70s were like this. And I think The Shining just kind of made that subtext text. Mm. Uh, and and also for Nicholson himself as a performer, that was always that edge Was always part of his persona. It was always just something that was utilized for kind of anti-authority, anti-establishment ends. You know, Mm. he was always kind of it was always righteous anger, and Mm. then Kubrick kind of marshaled it and used it in a really like uh, subversive way. I would say, where the that righteousness, self-righteousness, was turned against itself, and it became incredibly abusive and scary, and and all these things.
2: I think in in light of the shifts in culture, it is an abusive film. Um, And rather than just being a horror film, I find myself more and more as I watch it. I've probably watched it 20 times. But especially this last time, I just really latched on to um, the character of Wendy. Mm. And, And just what, because you know, I don't know if you guys have gotten into this, but you know what happened to Shelley Duvall during the making of this film. And right, yeah, we um, went
0: into a little bit of detail of that yesterday.
2: Okay. And it really comes through. Like, the camera really captures it, and you it, it's, it's this visceral kind of, um, you know, breaking the wall in a sense where you really it, – it's, it's almost like a double empath, empathetic sort of relationship that you take on or, or connection that you take on with her. Just seeing her traumatized, the, the, the whole process of the film – She's desperately trying to hang on to her logic and her sense of normalcy right right and and isn't this all what we're all kind of trying to do now in a certain sense mm. but but it's all falling apart, and she has no you know the the to me the 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 line with the most gravity is when she's f- holding him off with a base baseball bat, and she says, "I'm just very confused hmm." And that, that, you know, I really, especially this last time, I really felt what she was going through.
0: Yeah, there's something especially maybe topical about that whole part now, too, especially as it goes with isolation and, and hunkering down In that there have been lots of stories I've been reading about how victims of abuse at home are being abused more this year because of how much more they are staying at home this mm-hmm. year than in, in previous years as well.
1: Right. Yeah, that it, it certainly is topical in that sense. The Shining has found a way to kind of remain relevant. Uh, mm-hmm. probably even more so than when it was released. I think it was very much ahead of its time and and you know, almost everyone I've talked to about about The Shining first saw it, you know, on TV or on VHS or DVD. It's something that the home home viewing experience has kind of like really it brought out I think the the essence of the film in a way because it is a film i think that that rewards re-watching it more than any other and so much of it comes out you know in in re-watching it um including one thing that uh, i know you've written on uh and, and you're interested in particular which is the nature of the, the 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 overlook itself and particularly like the nature of how it's kind of haunting Uh, The Mm -hmm. Torrance family, which is something I found really intriguing. Um, Could you explain a little bit more about your kind of take on that?
2: Yeah, I think I agree with you that a movie like this, it's so good for repeated viewing. And every time I watch the movie, I feel like I'm having a different experience. Mm. And several years ago, while I was working on my dissertation, I watched the movie, you know, in a new perspective, um, having coming out of coming out of some. some, some theories of affect and um, um, me trying to develop an idea of an unseeing cinema, uh, which, mm-hmm. is, which is the aspect of cinema that is not clearly evident in the images, but is suggestive through sounds and hearings and, and um, signs. Um, and what I found this one time watching the movie is that the Overlook is a fourth character rather than a setting. Right. So so if you think about the film it's really an inter- a relationship among these four characters. So a family comes to inhabit the space and the character of the overlook is there from the beginning and it kind of emerges and eventually comes to be visibly evident but before then you know you've got the three main characters trying to come to terms with going what's going on in different ways. You know um Jack sees things. Uh, he, he starts mm-hmm. to have hallucinations. So the, so the overlook reveals itself to him. Um, right. It, you know, if you think of it as a character. Um, with, with Danny, he's sort of intersecting um, this space. And, and his, you know, his ability to shine and his imaginary friend, uh, Tony, acting as kind of an intercessor, you know, a, a mediator um, between him And this character of the overlook and, you know, really terrifying him. And then Wendy, who just cannot understand quite what's going on, trying to hold it all together, you know, like there's eventually (laughs) one of the things I write about is that eventually Danny has to make her see. Danny knows what's Hmm. going on. She's confused and he has to make her see. And how does he does? How does he do that? He goes to the door and writes murder on the door wakes her up so that she can finally see what's really going on and then from that point on she can now see what's really evident and and so it's this kind of interrelation of of all of these different uh characters i think of them as characters but really you know a person is kind of a force moving through an environment and this is just and if you think of the sense that this has been going on for years and years and years and years in this in this hotel Then these kind of um, this is just one incident of what of that kind of bringing together of these different characters.
0: Yeah, I suppose that that makes total sense because the the Overlook is not passive; it is very active, and it is doing all of these things seemingly with some kind of aim or goal or something that it wants to achieve.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah, and I I thought that was interesting too what you said about Wendy because. There's a moment near the end of the film which I've always kind of, I don't know, I, 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 it's one of the weaker parts of the film. And I've never really understood why Kubrick did it. And I think it probably makes more sense in the context of what you're saying. And I'm thinking of the scene when Wendy's walking around the hotel and she's starting to see it kind of come to life, all these ghosts you know, start to come out. And there's a moment where she goes upstairs or something, and she sees a room full of skeletons and cobwebs. And I've always thought that was just incredibly hokey. You know, like after yeah. building up these really like unique sorts of scares and, you know, like the blood flowing from the elevator and, and you know, the the man with the the guy in the bear suit and all these things that were really uncanny, he just kind of reverts to something that's very cliched. And I thought, it might make sense in the context of like if if Danny is trying to make Wendy see the hotel, then she, as you know, Nicholson refers to her. She's a confirmed uh, ghost story and horror film addict. She's going right. to see that hotel through the prism of all the cliches that she's hmm. read about in horror novels and and movies and whatnot.
2: That's an interesting idea. I think yeah.
1: that it makes it make much more sense because I I just don't know why Kubrick would throw in this really, you know, have this throwaway cliched moment where he just kind of shows something that you would see in like a, you know, a fifties B horror movie or something.
0: Right. And that goes a little bit with what we were talking about yesterday with how much of it is maybe just coincidence or something and how much of it is very intentional Stanley Kubrick doing something where there's no coincidence. Everything, everything that Kubrick does is very intentional and things like that.
2: Right. Right. It could be some studio influence. You never know uh, all of these hands that get involved in the writing, or, you know, the development of the film as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, Like, I, I think there was a lot of material that was shot that didn't necessarily make it into it. So maybe that just worked for that particular moment. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I mean, I, I think either way, it's fascinating to think that the hotel itself has The Shining.
2: Mm-hmm
1: you know just as much yeah. as Danny and and Dick Halloran have the shining right. and that it's exercising those effects on on the
2: characters right i think that's the i think that's the medium that's going through with Danny and his involvement with the overlook is is that kind of relationship but it's interesting because it's not developed in halloran
0: but you know I mean, we we we're, we're talking a lot about this um kind of perhaps rightfully so with the shining being its own movie but uh Maybe without the, the context of Dr. Sleep, which came out last year and Jim, do you think that that is you know canon to you is did you see Dr Sleep or
2: No, I did and I don't. I, I did see it and I don't think it is. I'm trying to forget it.
0: yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> I did to me it, to me it felt like a superhero movie
0: um, mm, yeah.
2: with a with a terribly bad um, third act that was far too visual and too clean. And too obvious. I just, I liked the first third of the film. The Mm -hmm. second third of the film um, felt like a superhero movie with everybody flying around. Um, And then the final act just didn't work for me at all.
0: Yeah, because that's, you know, I guess they do answer a lot of questions in that one. But then you sometimes wonder, well, I don't know if I wanted it answered so, so nicely or tied (laughs) up in a book like that. (laughs)
2: Right. The interesting thing about Doctor Sleep, I think, is it's very satisfying if you've read the book. I don't know if you guys have read the book, but um, it's you know if if you take if you were to take Steve, Stephen King's The Shining novel and then maybe read Doctor Sleep, which I haven't read, and then see the movie, maybe it's better. I don't know because it seems like it's giving more of a nod to King than it is to Kubrick.
1: When I think there's also parts I haven't read Doctor Sleep. I've read The Shining, but. I think there are parts, if I'm not mistaken, in Doctor Sleep where King kind of makes reference to the film version of The Shining. <laughs> and you almost get a sense, because Doctor Sleep is fairly recent, mm-hmm. that it's as much a response and a continuation of the novel as it is a response to the film. I thought mm-hmm.
2: so as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess
0: the the movie is you can't really separate the book from the movie at this point. It's so ingrained in in pop culture.
2: Yeah. Except the different things happen and it's interesting, but but yeah, that you kind of for me I when I watch The Shining, I sort of draw together the book and the movie renderings of these characters. The novel to me really deals with his alcoholism and his abuse a little more. Um and Wendy is a very different character. And she's, Wendy is good in the novel and she's good in the movie.
0: Right, right. So yeah, never... it's just an adaptation thing, you know? I mean, right. something that might work in the, the novel may not have worked quite as well in uh, the film version, or at least in the way that Stanley Kubrick wanted to do the film.
1: True. Yeah, and you've never really kind of, uh, or I'll just ask you point blank. Like the some of the criticisms I think King made this in particular about Wendy kind of being misogynistic. Like she's her character is kind of stripped stripped away in the film version, and Kubrick or uh, King felt that that was kind of misogynistic. She was kind of just reduced to kind of walking around and screaming and being hysterical. Uh, Kubrick made the argument that. The only reason or the only way you're going to believe that Wendy Torrance would stay with Jack is if she is kind of vulnerable. And, you know, if she is this like attractive, independent woman as portrayed in the novel, it's very hard to believe why she would actually stay with Jack.
2: True. That's a good point, because, um, well, that I mean, the movie didn't really deal with some of the issues of, you know, there's the line in the bar when Jack Nicholson says that he pulled Danny up after, after he threw his papers around. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's dealt with, with much more depth in, in the, in the book. And, and that's a good question. I hadn't thought of that. Like, why would she stay in that situation? I mean, that's a, obviously that's a whole other um, matter, but I, I think that, you know, it, it, I, I kind of prefer the the movie Wendy a little bit more actually, because. Really? Yeah, I I do because um, again she's she's trying to hold on to her logic. She's you know you can see it in terms of these archetypes of, of the one who's trying to hold together the household when all around her is madness, and she right. she has to try to hold it together. And eventually, you know, no man saves her in this film. She right. has to figure it out. She has to get out. She she brings Danny to safety. Um, mm-hmm. She has to figure it out and then in in the in the book i mean i i actually don't remember her character very much I, I remember her being very capable but um i don't know i think it adds it it adds more of a of a of a psychological um horror to make her try her damnest damnedest to hold on to a sense of normalcy
0: i think it might uh raise the stakes a little bit too if she is a bit more vulnerable and is a little bit um i i'm mean, not not weaker for uh, quite but you know it does if she's a little bit confused and is scared the uh, the whole way then that certainly can help to raise the stakes and make things feel a little bit more dire
1: hmm. yeah and it, it's also interesting too to to bring this back to the idea of the hotel and you know the overlook itself kind of being a character which which has the shining um if you know a lot of the domestic turmoil between Wendy and Jack isn't just kind of really being played out by, you know, Danny and to some extent to Kalorin, but especially the overlook mm-hmm. and especially Danny and the, in the hotel kind of, I guess, competing against each other, or, you know, they're using the shining in opposing ways to kind of uh, to different ends. Cause Danny obviously is trying to, trying to help his family escape. Um, I think in the, the movie version, like, he kind of gives up on Jack. Where in the mm-hmm. film, like, there's much more of his humanity preserved True. at the end.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's, and I it's think
1: interesting to think about Danny as kind of, like, really the one moving the pieces, kind of behind the scenes.
2: Yeah, I think that's established more in the book as well. That there's the link between the two of them, between the Overlook and, and Danny.
0: Right, right. Uh, Regarding... um. um Wendy, um, you know, no, like no man saving her. I don't think Jack ever sort of wins, uh, so to speak, any sort of encounter between the two ever, right? I mean, she does always kind of come on top, um, having kind of won the encounter and kind of escaping to fight another day until the end of the movie as well. So, I mean, she is very, very self-assured in that way too.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's also that, you know... if Th- this aspect of the movie, which is, um, I think, wasn't King s- struggling with alcohol during this period when he wrote the book? I think yep. I read that. Yeah. And then um, there's the, you know, of course, the the undercurrent, uh, the subtext of the film is is a man's desire to do his work and provide for the family and to transcend his lowly status, you know, in order to, you know, he needs to do his work. He needs to be the creative um, guy, um, the creative man of the house, and she's impeding him, right? And so there's this idea of the relationship of someone who is a writer being married and having a family and how the family and the wife impinges upon the man's ability to transcend himself and become this creative individual. I'm using transcend in the sense of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, whereas Wendy just tries to hold it together. But there is that subtext Mm. of that, that is King, a kind of reflexive aspect of King himself, writing about his own family and getting out these horrible thoughts that he was having about his family while he was writing the book, that they're avoiding him from being his creative self. So there's that as well.
1: Yeah, it's kind of... um... He's kind of exercising that aspect of himself right? Uh, in a way. And it's interesting, I, you know, I think, and this is something we got into a little bit yesterday, I think one of the reasons why King was so upset with the film version and why he kind of obsessed over it for so long is that Kubrick just totally undercuts that project, right? Mm. Like he he takes out a lot of Jack's humanity, he takes out a lot of his arc, and he basically just kind of goes from being a guy who hates his family, who needs an excuse to kind of get revenge on them or, or something to a guy who gets that chance. You mm-hmm. know, there's no kind of like, uh, I think at the end in the novel version, like he kind of, he kind of tells Danny and Wendy to get out of there. Like he's, right. you know, he has a moment where he comes back to his senses. Right. And, uh, you could never imagine like even Jack, when he's sane, <laughs> barely says anything nice yeah. about, uh, about Danny or Wendy.
2: Right. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a
0: great moment at the beginning when they're driving and he's kind of just sort of looking annoyed the whole drive there. And he's, I think the only thing he really says to his son is, well, he should have finished your breakfast.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And that was one of King's critiques. Right. And I, I think this is a valid one that that Jack Nicholson is is insane. He's <laughs> he's insane from the beginning, kind of. He, he doesn't really develop in the way that the book has it.
1: Yeah, but it's in a weird way. Like I've, I understand that critique, and it it makes sense. But for me, it just doesn't really matter because I think yeah. Nicholson's performance is so interesting, despite not being necessarily very realistic or not having having the character arc it does in the novel. Um, there's something almost like James Cagney esque about it where you're watching a lot of it just to see the next face he'll pull like mm. just to see the next bizarre sort of way he's going to articulate these lines and I, I know that's one thing uh, Kubrick said to Spielberg when he was talking to Spielberg after he, he first saw The Shining and Spielberg was like well I didn't, didn't really like the performances and Kubrick was like quick just off the top of your head tell me your your top three actors and you know Spielberg mentioned like I think Spencer Tracy and a couple other people and Kubrick said you didn't mention James Cagney and Spielberg said well I mean he's great but he's not in your top 3 Kubrick said and he's like that's why I think Nicholson's performance is great cuz for me Cagney is one of the best actors ever mm. and there is a there's a great physicality to that performance which I think it probably harkens back to films of that era, you know, of the 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, where there was this kind of physicality that was used not for comedy necessarily, but in a lot of gangster films, in a lot of film noir, that I think Kubrick kind of resuscitates in Nicholson's portrayal, and Nicholson himself does.
0: Hmm. He certainly does make a lot of great faces. I was looking for uh, I was looking for something. I think I was trying to sketch him in, um, in, from The Shining, and I just kept on just looking at stills of him in The Shining, just thinking, wow, what an interesting face. What an interesting face. And there are so <laughs> many moments where he's just got an, an interesting face going on, whether it's yeah. that shot of him wearing the turtleneck, sort of staring out the window, or him when Danny has joined him on the bed, or, of course, when he's doing the Three Little Pigs line. Um, It's just, and at the bar, at the bar when
2: he first sees Lloyd, yeah, looks straight into the camera.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, amazing faces, amazing.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Nicholson himself, I think, really, really makes the film work in a lot of ways. I've always wondered too if he didn't have a bit of the shining as well, or a bit of the shine himself, like not enough where it was conscious to himself, but enough where he kind of he had an inkling that there was something at the overlook that he he was attracted to something more than just you know a, an opportunity to write a novel or whatever um
2: yeah i think this is an inter- interesting point and i think if you if you take again if you think of the overlook as a character and then their matter of access is different and at varying levels um then yeah he's maybe it's not Shining, but maybe everybody has a bit of shine in them, um, and that Danny and Halloran just have it at a very amplified state. But that's that's what allows the access to possession. You know, it's a it's a Mm -hmm. very um, parapsychological kind of idea, and you know, there's this theory that we're all psychic to a certain level. Um, We just don't know how to tap into it. I, I don't know if I buy into that, but if you take that at the narrative level, then then yeah, he's probably picking up resonances of the past and drawing from them. And that's what uh, is enticing um, about the idea of killing his family. It's, it's, so possession just isn't, isn't just someone taking over your soul. It's, a, it's almost like an invitation.
1: Yeah, and I, actually I wanted to pull up uh, something that you wrote, an, an interesting set of rhetorical questions that I, I found very interesting. Um, you write quote "Can an unseen body lacking objectivity you're talking of course of the the overlook and the the ghosts become a subject strictly through the capacity to see and hear Can these spirits know what Jack's intentions are by watching him? Is observation and hearing enough for agency or do they uh, also need to infect the environment with madness and movement through Jack? Mm-hmm. so I like this idea, especially that phrase infect. The Environment with Madness, mm-hmm. uh, which really, you know, it's it's easy to think of the Overlook as just being this pre-existing haunted sort of place that they stumble into and kind of experience. But it's more interesting to think about the Overlook as actually working with the people that are staying there, the occupants, to kind of get its own ends, you know, to get what it wants and, and using the people there.
2: hmm to join the party,
1: to join the party, yeah,
0: right, right. They don't need everyone; they just need at least one person to kind of uh, just be a means to an end.
2: Yeah, there's it's an interesting thing about duty. I I think with um, Grady, you know, there's there's this idea of duty that you're the you're the you're the one who's who's um, the caretaker, and you have a duty. Right, and
1: Jack is almost kind of there's something kind of pathetic about how much he kind of uh prostrates himself to the hotel, yeah, in a way like he's the whole time and you know when talking with wendy and um and Danny, he's just so kind of abusive, but with when he's talking with Stuart Ullman, when he's you know talking with people at the hotel, like he's very willing to kind of bow to their demands um mm-hmm if it means him getting access to whatever it is he kind of wants there, which I guess leads to the question, what does Jack ultimately want?
2: Yeah. I, I think that he, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I think that he's, he's, he's aware of his faults. Um, you know, he's, there's more of a redemptive kind of quality again in the novel. I, I mean, we we're talking about the novel a, a lot. We should treat the film as the film, I think, but, Right. I think there's something in him that um, that wants to take care of the family, um, but he, you know, he wants to do his work, and and he wants to. I think there's very much this masculine need, you know, that's very 1980, to provide for the family, and he sees his way of providing for the family is to become a great writer. I think that's I think that's what he's doing, and if this enables him to do it, if this inspires him if if this is the place where he can get it done that's then that's just where he needs to be in order to do it and he's going to give himself over to the powers of be that be in order to do the work that he needs to do
1: yeah because it is interesting how he he just really accepts you know the apparitions he sees he really kind of just there's not a lot of hesitation it doesn't take much for him to to see a bartender in a fully stocked bar and say, okay, I'm going to roll with this.
0: <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. And there's a fascistic element to that as well, right? How you so? Know, well, just the idea of being susceptible to a kind of mind control that convinces you of something that horrific.
0: Mm. Oh, Interesting. I never thought of it that way, um, which in a way makes this movie even more topical today than,
2: True. <laughs> than
0: been in a long time.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of um, its topicality, we've already touched on COVID and kind of being locked down and in quarantine and stuff like that. Do you think the movie has, you know, maybe in the context of of talking about the Overlooks Agency and whatnot, do you think there's there's another kind of aspect of the film that's relevant politically or socially today?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think just this aspect of. The idea of um, how we come to believe what we believe, you know, through channels that are outside of us um, and affecting us. There's something also very viral to the hotel itself and viral to the idea of um, convincing people um, to think in certain ways and act in certain ways and believe in certain ways and hold on to beliefs in a certain way. You know he mm-hmm. very much believes that it's his duty to kill his family. Right. That's an extreme version of 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 a kind of manipulation that we get when our information is curated for us by our own systems of belief, which is what social media is. right? so he's right. he's very much susceptible to everything that reinforces his need to do his duty which is very different from Wendy and Danny.
1: Well, right. Cause they're getting all of their outside information, or at least Wendy from the radio, from TV, from traditional forms of media.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: And Danny of course is on another level um, with the shining.
2: Yeah. Danny has, Danny has an ability to tap into what is real without it being evident. Right. So he's not susceptible to anyone's suggestions tony is a is a strange sort of guide for him tony there's nothing wrong with tony at all right there's nothing (laughs) i i don't think so there's nothing malevolent about tony at all i don't know do you guys think so
0: no not really just seems to be kind of a typical imaginary friend for a child but you know even if he is real he doesn't seem to be like any of the malevolent spirits inside the inside the hotel well i think just
1: his voice and the way he's articulated by danny like he there is something about in a lot of films, uh, when when a ghost is portrayed, especially like a good ghost, it has this kind of like uncanny aspect to it that said even you know, even if it's going to be doing good things or it's not malevolent, it's very clearly marking itself as not human and mm-hmm. as kind of uncanny. And there's there's an element of caution, I think, that comes along with that too. You mm-hmm. know, like Tony will be a guide. He he will kind of ultimately be a force for good but just the way he he talks and you know every every kind of experience you get with him it's it's kind of like okay well be careful though i mean he, he it doesn't seem exactly like anything we've experienced
2: right and i love when stories do that when they make it seem malevolent but it's really you know a, a guiding force i think for good and for giving him information and for warning him it's interesting you know that it's the imaginary friend that is not visible it's the and he says he lives in my stomach which I right. think is really interesting whereas um you know Jack is is has these corporeal you know visual conversations with people who seem logical you know it's it's Jack's inner relation with the with the with the character of the hotel is very logical and having a conversation and with with Danny, it's very sensory, it's audible, it's not visual. Um, he's tuning in on this other frequency, on this other level. It's interesting you mentioned Wendy's connection with the radio, and she, you know, there's the outside guy who's very kind to her, whereas Jack is not. He's kind and understanding, whereas Jack is not. So they're dealing with things on these different frequencies. You can think of it that way. She has her frequency, Danny has his frequency. And Jack has his frequency. Jack's is, is this appearance of logic and common sense, you know, and duty, which I think mm. is very much the masculine sort of archetype.
1: Right. And it, it's all, you know, exacerbated by isolation, which exactly. is the exact political moment we're finding ourselves in right now, yeah. right? Right. Um, well, uh, is there anything else you wanted to, to mention before we kind of wrap up here?
2: No, I don't think so. I I think it's interesting. I would like to ask you guys both a question because I was thinking about this. There's the traditional sense of the protagonist who needs to achieve something and the Mm. antagonist whose sole role is to avoid the protagonist from achieving what he or she needs to get. And I'm wondering who you guys think is the protagonist and antagonist, if there is one.
0: Yeah, I Mm. suppose the, the traditional sense, it might actually be, jack torrance just because he is the main character so to speak but maybe as far as the 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 person who is um you know struggling and the person who is trying to overcome i think that would be wendy interesting because
1: i would say it would be danny i i think danny is the protagonist and the the overlook is the antagonist i would definitely
0: say either the antagonist is uh jack or the overlook probably the overlook but yeah maybe maybe it would be wendy uh, for me is who'd picked to be the protagonist,
2: yeah, it's interesting. I asked the question because you could sort of see it in in different sorts of tensions, like if I think if Jack is the protagonist, then Wendy is the antagonist and and if if Wendy is the is the protagonist, Jack and the hotel are the antagonist, I suppose and then hmm. but, but we do very much you know in the Greek sense, it's the person through whom we see the story. I think Danny is. Is is the one? There's just, it's I love it when movies float these kind of identities rather than fixing them.
1: Well, it's it's amazing that forty years later we don't even know who the protagonist of this movie is. You know, like it's that's what I love about Kubrick and yeah. and the ambiguity that he always kind of traffics in, which is ambiguity that's incredibly earned. You know, because every aspect of the film is so consciously. Th- mulled over and thought over and and the ambiguity he ultimately serves up as one that's the result of an incredible amount of effort to to strip away anything that would kind of nail things down too much or or would kind of uh you know get away at the eat away at the kind of like really juicy mystery of it that that everyone i think enjoys about this film
0: it also kind of highlights the fine line that exists between you know, not knowing who the protagonist is because it's intriguing to talk about and the movie is well-written and not knowing who the protagonist is because the movie is poorly written.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Good right. point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because sometimes you just don't know and that's kind of a flaw of the movie.
2: Mm-hmm. This is a problem with many movies is you don't know why a character is doing what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's definitely, I-, I think, more of a trend in recent years and probably the last decade towards i guess imbuing you know the main characters with these sort of qualities whether it's based on their identity or whether it's based on like really kind of safe and cliched motivations that it makes me wonder if you could get away with a movie like the shining today Mm. i don't think you could actually
0: You could maybe in in the realm of television with characters like Walter White, for instance.
1: Right, right, yeah, and maybe you know, The Shining would have to be a TV series and not not a feature film, at least not one released by Warner
0: Brothers. Yeah, the popular big studio films are are you know, especially in the world of superheroes, all really quite quite clearly, oh, good guy and bad guy and things like that. But uh, maybe you could blend it a little bit more in television.
2: Yeah, there's more uh, chance there I think to develop arcs in different ways over an episodic uh, approach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um well, listen Jim, I wanted to thank you a lot for for stopping by and uh, giving your thoughts. It was a really fascinating insight into the the overlook and and other aspects of the shining which honestly I never really gave that much attention to un, until I I read what uh, what you had to say about it and 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 uh, listened to your conversation today.
2: Yeah, well, thanks to you both. I really enjoyed it. It's it's fun to talk about movies, and I really enjoy what you guys are doing. Uh, keep up the good work.
0: Thanks very much, Jim. It was a pleasure to talk to you, I and mean, very enlightening. Yeah, thank you. I got a question for you before we really dive in. Now, I know you've read The Shining, the novel, and I haven't read The Shining, but I've seen the movie multiple times. Do you think that reading or not reading the novel kind of enhances the the movie in any way? Like, does it make it better to read the novel or perhaps does the novel kind of explain a little bit too much? And in not reading the novel, are you kind of getting a more, a purer experience? Um, I don't think it matters that much. I think reading the novel does enrich the viewing experience. Just knowing all these backstories that could connect to the characters in the film yeah in some ways i was I was wondering about that because if if you are having those questions answered in the book and you know it in the movie, then perhaps there is a little bit of a, a mystery gone, but I think that the movie is 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 does enough to let you kind of just accept that there are weird things afoot, and you know in some ways you don't even really need the explanations, um, and I think a lot of times that's kind of common in ghost movies as well is that these are already forces that you can't understand so if there is some kind of vision or something that doesn't make sense then in the world of the movie that's totally acceptable
1: well yeah i mean there's a good reason why the film version of the shining has this obsessive kind of following whereas the novel it has a big fan base but it had a big fan base when it was released i mean it was popular then it's it's still fairly well known now I don't think it really led to a, a new type of audience or developed a new type of audience where The Shining movie really did.
0: I yeah. mean,
1: these are people who love watching you know, YouTube analyses and looking for clues and stuff like that. And they're really kind of hung up on the idea of Kubrick the perfectionist. You know, this is something Jack Nicholson actually said about Kubrick, that his work is, quote, completely conscious. So every detail of the film you could potentially read something into. Whether it's like uh, the Apollo 11 sweater that Danny wears, right? Uh, There was this YouTube video recently on a red book on Stuart Ullman's desk in the office, potentially explaining the entire film. And it turned out it was just like some random book. But this guy thought it was like uh, this book that explained everything. And, you know, like all of that is rooted in the idea that Kubrick is someone for whom every detail was planned out and and there's nothing accidental in his films.
0: Right. There's no no such thing as coincidence in a Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, which is kind of part of the the myth and mythos of Stanley Kubrick that stretches even beyond The Shining, even in things like Eyes Wide Shut. People, as I mentioned yesterday, people kind of just look for hidden meanings and seemingly benign objects in a toy store. Right, right. And it's built into the the themes of a lot of his films, too, like this idea of
1: like, you know, perfectly conceived plans that go wrong because of something, human error or accident or madness, you know, and I think there is this idea that maybe Kubrick is kind of poking fun at the limits of his own ability to control things by having these kind of like continuity errors or these little little nods to this or that. Um, I think also like The Shining is probably a movie that's, Really, like the the obsessive analysis over it probably dates back to, as far as I can find, a 1987 article. Uh, It's in the Washington Post, published by ABC News correspondent Bill Blakemore. And and he kind of lays out the case for the film being uh, about the genocide of the American Indians, as he says. Mm -hmm. And kind of just like a metaphor for all the historical atrocities that occurred in America. And that was kind of the first attempt to say, like, listen, The Shining is about this huge other thing that you didn't get when <laughs> you first saw it, right? Yeah,
0: yeah and, and, you know, you don't, you don't have to have seen anything like Room 237 or have read this article to have heard of that theory right there. That's one of the really the most common ones is that, like, the Overlook was buried on an Indian burial ground and things like that, and that's what it's really about.
1: Yeah, I think that was pretty common, you know like that that was kind of the first big interpretation that kind of recontextualized the meaning of the film i think what like in the 90s and 2000s when the internet kind of you know reached into every household you get all these more conspiratorial theories popping up right like um some of them actually make sense and some of these are actually in room 237 that documentary from 2012 uh bill blakemore actually is interviewed in that he's probably the the guy who makes the most sense really um but you know, with that documentary and then like a lot of YouTube videos by there's this guy named Rob Adger, who's really good and uh, has laid out a lot of interesting theories about the film, analyzing, for example, the the impossible space of the of the overlook. Mm-hmm. like if you map it out, the window, for example, in Stuart Ullman's office, like it doesn't make sense. it shouldn't it shouldn't look out to the outside because there should be like a room there or something. There, there's a lot more conspiratorial ones that you see in Room 237, like for, you know, the idea that the overlook was Kubrick admitting that he faked the moon landing.
0: Right. Just because of the kid's sweater.
1: Right. And I think one key piece of evidence is that, um, and this, I think the guy who laid this out was uh, Jay Wiedner in the documentary. But he says, like, well, if you count the number of cars in the parking lot, there's 42 And then 42 somehow relates to this other thing that means that the moon landing was faked. Um, He claims that if you watch the movie forwards and backwards, you see Stanley Kubrick's face imposed in the clouds in the opening scenes. And it's like you you can see the shot and it's like it's clearly not. (laughs) I mean, like you got to wonder what's motivating a lot of this or what's fueling it. Is it just like this desire
0: to find some deep hidden meaning in this movie or, or what? I've seen um, I've seen something about watching it forward and backward or kind of superimposing it forward and backward at the same time. And there was something that seemed to be kind of interesting about how Jack Nicholson's or Jack Torrance's face is kind of sort of framed exactly the same way in the exact same position at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie. Um, But, you know, I just I just kind of have to wonder about how intentional that really is knowing that that it's it could just be a pure coincidence and also that you know as humans we are always looking for patterns and things like that
1: yeah I I think you know that probably goes hand in hand with things like um watching Wizard of Oz with Dark Side of the Moon was it Dark Side of the Rainbow
0: yeah it works with it works with um Dark Side of the Moon it also works with Echoes which is also a Pink Floyd song so you know they couldn't have kept on doing this over and over again oh sorry it's not wizard of oz and echoes it's uh 2001 a space odyssey with uh echoes Echoes.
1: yeah yeah Yeah, right it's like it's hard enough to just make a movie but to make it where it's secretly lined up with an album that you're not telling anyone or that the you know the people are making the album to secretly line up with this film it's
0: like Right. What's the ultimate payoff for them by doing that? Yeah. You know. <laughs> so whenever I come across something like that, I might just kind of mildly think, "Oh, that's you know kind of interesting," and but I won't really take too much stock into that. Uh, this it might it's kind of maybe an interesting coincidence, but maybe nothing more.
1: Yeah, I ended up uh, getting pretty obsessed with Kubrick and The Shining and University. I ended up reading Jeffrey Cox's book because he he's the one who makes the case in Room Two Three Seven that The Shining is really about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. and it says like if you look at the adler typewriter for example that kubrick is that that jack torrance is using that's like a a, a german typewriter and you know it has this eagle that's reminiscent of the nazis and you know 37 1937 or 1942 whichever number you want to focus on is relevant for the the rise of the nazis um i think some of that's intriguing but overall like the the most compelling cases that I've heard with, say, Room 237 and whatnot is the idea that it's... There is, like, a lot of interesting historical context. That's the B- Bill Blakemore arguments. And uh, Julie Kearns and the the Rob Adger kind of arguments where it's, like, the impossible spaces of the film. Mm,
0: you know? Yeah, that's that's that seems maybe a little bit more planned out, that the overlook on the outside doesn't match the overlook on the inside. I can see how that could be kind of a a cool thing that maybe they have discussed or maybe they kind of planned to plan to do because that's also something that maybe if you the audience don't actually really notice it as you're watching there might be some part of you subconsciously that kind of notices that maybe sort of adds a little bit to the overall mood and feeling of the movie.
1: Well, I think that's the the best kind of interpretation of it because I, you know all these people are trying to kind of tie these things to broader sort of conspiracy theories or broader points about you know the movie's trying to say that like Danny was abused like Mm -hmm. or sexually assaulted or something by Jack or the movie's actually about the moon landings or something like that when if you just actually look at what Kubrick said at the time it's not really there's no need to dive into all these conspiracy theories or or kind of like kind of far out interpretations I mean one of the key sort of sources for him and inspirations when he was planning the film was was Sigmund Freud's essay on the uncanny, and that's something him and Diane Johnson kind of took a look at. And if you look into that essay, I mean, Freud kind of defines the uncanny as something familiar, which is encountered in an unsettling in, uh, environment or context. Sure, sure. And there's all sorts of references that I thought were pretty kind of important for The Shining and had had a lot of uh, resonance. I mean, the German word uh, Heimlich, which Freud kind of analyzes, means, amongst other things, belonging to the house or family, right? Or arousing a sense of peaceful pleasure and security, uh, as in uh, within the four walls of a house. So it's like it's very much kind of hearkening to the idea of domestic security, which is huge in The Shining. I mean, yeah. Freud also takes a look at this gothic horror writer, E.T.A. Hoffman, and he references how things like uh, telepathy and reflect- reflections and mirrors are connected to the uh, uncanny idea of, of doubling and doppelgangers. Right, right. So you think of all the mirror shots in The Shining, and, you know, obviously The Shining itself is is a form of telepathy. You know, for Freud, he, he talked about the uncanny being rooted in this idea of uh, repetition and compulsion in the unconscious, where there's this kind of compulsion to repeat things over and over again in slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think most importantly, Freud kind of made the case that in literature, and you would imagine this holds true for film the best way to create the feeling of, the, of uncanniness is through realism. So he says, like, for example, in fairy tales and fantasy stories, when the setting is clearly imaginary, you can kind of dismiss ghosts and things like that as just, not you don't have to believe in them. Like, they're they're purely belonging to the imaginary. Like, the souls in Dante's Inferno, the apparitions in Hamlet, they're not that scary. You can just kind of assume that they're not real and, and dismiss them as such. But in realistic stories, he says... The writer, quote, deceives us into thinking that he is giving us the sober truth and then, after all, oversteps the bounds of possibility. We react to his inventions as we should have reacted to real experiences. By the time we have seen through his trick, it is already too late and the author has achieved his object.
0: Well, of course, I mean, if you present something in kind of a realistic way, I mean, that's what really makes it um, spooky and a little bit scary, because if you're setting something and you're admitting that, oh, this is just part of the world, then if it's, you know, just kind of normal, then that's not really that's not really different or or frightening or anything like that. But everything that that you've been mentioning seems to be kind of like a bit of a springboard to either writing the book or making the movie. You know, this sounds very plausible, but it doesn't sound like any sort of secret message or anything like that. Maybe they're just kind of themes or images that you want to convey. Because if you are going to be doing like a secret message of oh this is this is about the Holocaust or this is about you know the Native American treatment and things like that, there's no reason to be shy about that at all. You know you could just go out and say it <laughs> well, exactly, and I mean, I think while it is not that
1: revolutionary a concept, it just wasn't used that often in horror films up to that point. Mm. you know, like if you think about the cliched horror movie it would be something where, you know, they would have deep shadows and ghosts and, you know, people walking around with with bedsheets on them saying boo. Um, you know, obviously with The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, you get into a, a, a deeper, more, uh, I guess, deeply rooted sense of horror where they're getting into the family and domestic spaces and they're invoking the uncanny a little bit more. But I, I wouldn't say either film is hyper-realistic i mean they they definitely have more at work in terms of the lighting the production design and whatnot uh that's that's more overtly a horror movie, whereas if you look at Kubrick I mean he deliberately set out to make the shining look very realistic, very bright. there's nothing that screams horror movie at all at least on the surface
0: yeah, and that's that is in in a way of what makes it um so spooky too because it's almost like they are in the only place in the world where this kind of thing is happening. Mm. Like, all they need to do is just go back to, to their home city and they'll be safe and things will be okay. Things will be okay. You know, they're not going to be haunted back home, right? Yeah. They're, they're on, they're in the place where the, the only place where this kind of thing is happening. And I think that's, that's a big reason why it kind of feels scary. There's just something about this one place. And you know, that's, that, that is something that can be used to great effect if you watch that TV show, the, the Haunting of Hill House. They kind of did the same thing there, too. But, I mean, they were kind mm. of being haunted in other places as well, but it was all because of that one, that one house. But other than that, I mean, that is setting it in the real world, and that's what makes it effective.
1: Well, I, I think for Kubrick, uncanniness was something that could best be invoked by adopting the appearance of, of realism while gradually kind of unsettling our sense of the familiar uh, behind the scenes on a more subconscious level. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why he started using a lot of intentional continuity errors, not just in The Shining, but really every movie he made after The Shining. Um, If you look at all the continuity errors, I, I think some of them are just obviously mistakes. Because, I mean, you know, the shoot ran on for so long, it was like a year Right, mm. there was at one right. point one of the sets burnt down. It's, it it makes sense that there w- there would be some continuity errors. But I mean, when you look at, for example, when Danny is playing with some toys and that tennis ball rolls to him, uh, in one shot when the when the ball first comes, the the patterns on the carpet are facing one way, in the next shot they're facing the other way, and that's something that you would think you would really have to work to do. Like you would have to intentionally design it so that the carpet is facing the other way. It's not something, if you're just shooting there, you're not going to make the mistake of just accidentally shooting the exact opposite way, right?
0: Right, right, yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely. That's that's something that, especially someone, a perfectionist like Stanley Kubrick, that's not just a mistake, for sure.
1: Right, or the uh, uh, another one that I actually didn't notice until recently, Jack's uh, typewriter changes color. It, oh, it's okay. first white, it changes to kind of bluish later on. Um there's also the scene when when Wendy interrupts him when he's working on his you know typewriter. Uh close-ups of Jack in the background in some of them you can see a chair. And then in some of them the chair just totally disappears.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's 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 one that I I remember noticing. I think in the last rewatch I think I caught that one uh my own eye.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because that's one, again, like you would have to go there and take the chair
0: out. You're not just going to accidentally do that, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this this movie took a long time to shoot, but not in an Orson Welles sort of way where, you know, someone opening a door is in 1970 and then entering <laughs> the door is 1975. I don't think it was quite quite like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I love reading those stories about, yeah. you know, I think it's Othello or Macbeth or something. It's like, oh yeah, he walked in the door, and then like by the time we had money to shoot the the next part, it was like a year later. Yeah, um,
0: so I, I think it was more like it took the, a year to film the whole movie rather than two or three months to film the same office scene.
1: Yeah, and they're also I I don't think like stopping the shooting of this one scene. Doing other things and then going back to finish it like six months later. I think they're pro- mm-hmm. they would probably just finish the scene. Um, there's a couple other cool things like the the TV they're watching when that movie Summer Forty Two is on when when Wendy and Danny are watching it. It's it's not plugged in, and that's something oh. I didn't notice until fairly recently too. Which is probably just a, a visual thing. Kubrick probably didn't want some you know
0: extension cord hanging sure somewhere, but it's but it still adds to it. It does. Um, still as these, you know, it's, it's these little, little things that shouldn't be that are. And I guess when you, when you, when it, you make it a bit of a motif in your film, um, it all just kind of helps to add to the overall eeriness of everything.
1: Yeah. I think the background does a lot because you, you feel like it's very realistic, but then you see all these things or you, you at least sense them. Oh, and I should mention too, the Alex Colville paintings, that you see in the background of the Overlook. Uh, Alex Colville is actually a, a painter from Nova Scotia in Atlanta, Canada. And my friend Will pointed out that there's like four of his paintings in the background, including like, for example, you know, a, a horse on train tracks running towards a speeding train, which is a, a pretty famous painting. A number of others. There's actually a painting of his that's not shown in the film, but probably inspired the use of the yellow Volkswagen that the Torrance's used because there's a painting of his, of a woman kind of sitting on the bonnet of a, a beetle, a yellow beetle. And most likely that probably inspired the choice of, of the yellow bug in the film.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, and we, we mentioned this on our on our talk of uh, Midsomar with, with Ari Aster about how he kind of puts a little bit of music that's a bit at a frequency where maybe you can't hear it, or not music, but sounds that Sound you maybe design. you can't, yeah, where you can't quite hear it, but you you definitely sense it or feel it. And that's kind of what adds a little bit to the eeriness of the film too.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of clever details when Danny is talking to Dick Holloran, um if you look the the way it's set up, there's like Danny is sitting, and in the background there's this big uh, shelf of of knives or this rack of knives that are just aimed straight down at Danny's head. You know, and there, it's in the background, but the spatially, the way it's set up, it looks like Danny has all these knives hanging over his head. Mm, you know, and yeah. it, it does kind of create this sense of of unease. And then like the mirrors too. There's so many uses of mirrors that I find kind of disorienting. Like when Wendy brings Jack his breakfast and the scene kind of starts in the mirror and zooms out. And it's not until the end of the scene that you realize that that shot was in a mirror. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I I really like that. Um, Of course, the red rum scene is as well, where it's like a mirror plays a huge part. Um, And I thought it was pretty cool too, that apparently every time, jack is speaking to a ghost he's looking into a mirror
0: mm, but oh is there a mirror at the uh, at the bar when he's yes. talking to lloyd yeah okay all right yeah I, and i suppose that's all just you know you can think of it as uh themes of duplicity and you know how, how something might look one way but uh, actually appears a different way because the there's nothing really that spooky about just a hotel where people stay year round but then, of course, all of this horrific stuff is happening.
1: When it also leaves open the possibility that it's it's psychological, right? Because Jack mm. could just be talking to himself in a mirror if he's that crazy. Um, plus, I mean, just all the the weird sort of doublings with the characters. I mean, the Grady twins, which are really eerie twins. Uh, the the weird doublings of Charles and Delbert Grady, which I've always found weird. Like the original caretaker that Almond talks to to Jack Torrance about is named Charles Grady and then the 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 waiter that uh Jack runs into in the gold room is named Delbert Grady. Mm. And when he asks him like listen you were the caretaker here you're the one who murdered your family the Delbert Grady denies that ever happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true, but I mean that is that is kind of the whole point and that's something that Danny even sees when he's on his tricycle. Right. How how so? Oh well just when he's when he's looking at uh when he's looking at the twins and then there's that flash of a second of the twins all covered in blood.
1: Oh right, right. Like
0: that. That they're so, not how they appear to be. Yeah, right, right, right. But also that there's no doubt that there's that there was some kind of murder that occurred there. Right, right, right. Because that's something that Danny is seeing as well and he's kind of in a way the most informed of them all with the shining.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he's kind of seeing through this right away. Whereas yeah. Jack can't really do that. Yeah, I think the the whole kind of design of the overlook really worked on that level where it's it's like you you sense these things that are giving you this this feeling of unease. And I think the cinematography as well, like the the bright and naturalistic lighting kind of eased you into this film, thinking like, okay, well, this is very familiar. Um, the steady cam as well, I think it Gives you this illusion of transparency, like you're you're getting a clear understanding of the space of the Overlook. Because you know when you're following Danny on his tricycle, or just kind of watching, you know, Wendy and and Jack getting the tour of the Overlook, you're kind of on some level thinking like, okay, well, I'm getting familiarized with this space. But in fact, it's really used to sow confusion because those spaces themselves that you think you're getting to know don't make sense. There's doors that lead to
0: nowhere um windows that lead to nowhere there it's physically impossible yeah there there are there are like we've said a few times there are some offices and things like that that if you look enough if you look closely enough they shouldn't be there
1: right and and even how one room connects to another like we're never really showing how one particular space would really connect like the bathroom for example in the gold room like we don't really see how that could connect to the gold room and I think people have tried to map it out and it doesn't really make sense how that would exist given the parameters, the layout that you see. Mm. Um, I think a lot of this is done to kind of set up the overlook like a maze. Like Kubrick said himself, uh, quote, the the cam shots mirror the kind of camera movements which took place in the maze. And there is this idea that you know, the overlook itself is kind of like a labyrinth and there, you know, there's residences with Greek mythology and the, you know, the Minotaur and stuff like that, where there's this kind of like deadly force hidden in this hotel and that you're kind of like, you know, the more you go into it, the longer you stay, you're kind of getting lost in this maze and uh, becoming prey to this sort of deadly force.
0: Mm, right. So it's, it's a bit of a, like a metaphorical and figurative maze that turns into a literal maze at the end of the movie. Exactly,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's all the more powerful because you as an audience, while you're watching it, you're, you're thinking you're getting a clear idea of this place. You know, It's like, imagine somebody leading you into this space and then you try to get out of it and suddenly you realize, wait, how did I get here? Like, yeah. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. It, it, shouldn't the door be over there? Shouldn't the exit be over there? But it's not. It's like yeah.
0: it, it is very uncanny. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean it it's um it's like we said just this sense of of familiarity but it's something that's just not quite right and I think that's something that's really great about this movie throughout the start to finish throughout its run actually is that it you just something is just off the whole time. Did you really get that feeling when you when you first saw it or do you remember having that feeling or was that something more that you became conscious of later? Oh, I definitely think it's something that I became more conscious of later because uh, I think we talked about this yesterday, our first time with The Shining, I must have been 12 or 13 or something like that. Right. And I think maybe at that age, I must have just sort of taken it for granted or just kind of taken it without really questioning or analyzing it or anything like that. It's, well, you know, it's a family and now the guy is just going to try and kill them. But I think as an adult, maybe a little bit more aware of that kind of thing and a bit more attuned to uh to noticing things like this because maybe back then I didn't know that that's something that people that filmmakers did on purpose you know right right and that's a tool that they can use
1: we probably weren't aware that you know maybe one of the reasons why this movie was so compelling is
0: because there was a lot of stuff going on in terms of the filmmaking yes yeah exactly the the filmmaking aspect may have been lost on me as as um a younger kid the first time that I saw it uh, and it's definitely right. something that you're a bit more attuned. The more, I mean, the older you get, but also the more that you watch, you know, because maybe if you don't watch a lot of movies, you might think, oh, that editing thing seems like it was a mistake. But in reality, it might have been done intentionally. Uh, there's a, a lot of good examples of that in Shutter Island, for instance. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. It's a lot of things like where like Leo and Mark Ruffalo might be just slightly out of position after a camera cuts or kind of switch places or something like that. But of course, I mean, something like that is definitely intentional to give you a kind of feeling. And it's something that might be really common in, in horror movies. Well, Scorsese is kind of a master at using
1: uh, continuity errors in an exciting way. Like, Goodfellas is full of them.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah.
1: they're really, like, they're used intentionally to create different effects. And and Shutter Island is full of them. He, he really did yeah. a great job with them there, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think The Shining is... is- Similar in that way, well I think the the sense of
1: spatial disorientation is is really important, but I, I would say arguably the sense of kind of temporal, temporal or historical disorientation is, is just as important because I mean, when you take a look at all of the history that's you know referenced in the film. There's so many kind of repressed histories, it it becomes difficult to, to grasp who exactly is supposed to be doing the haunting, right? Like, well, I mean, Ullman brings up the fact that uh, the Overlook was built on a, you know, Indian burial grounds. Yeah. And there's obviously the decor of the Colorado Lounge that even the name Red Rum, it's, uh, I've read, you know, it, it has kind of connections to like red rum alcohol, but also red drum. Oh, right. You know, something that might be used uh, on a warpath or something like that. Um, So that's one. Then there's the, the history of American settlers and, you know, the allusion to the Donner party that Jack, mentions and and danny kind of mentions as well they spent the winter of nine or 1846 and 47 snowbound in the sierras and they were forced to eat each other up as danny
0: says
1: (laughs) yeah uh there's the jazz age the party goers of the 1920s who take over the gold room and the novel's full of a lot more explicit references to these people they're kind of more based in the 40s in the novel but there's a lot of like gangsters politicians uh jet setters elites um Rob Adger, who's, who's the YouTuber that I, I referenced before, he actually looked at the, the photo at the end of the film featuring that mysterious you know, version of Jack Torrance uh, in 1921, and almost all the people around him in the photo are actually from the Woodrow Wilson era. Woodrow Wilson's daughters are there, a bunch of people in his administration. So, like, okay, there's, so
0: yeah, that would, that would predate the 20s.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's leading up to the 20s. Sure, um, sure. That's more World War I, though. I think it's uh it's at the end of or nearing the end of his administration. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I'm I'm not exactly sure there's a lot of confusion about when this per- uh, picture was taken. They don't exactly know. Um uh, and, and he looked there's a lot of pictures in the background of like, you know, people figures uh famous actors. I think James Mason is is in a photograph in the background at some point um right up to JFK. There's also like the history of the Timberline Lodge itself, which harkens back to the 1930s and the Great Depression, right? And I mentioned that yesterday. FDR had this Works Progress Administration where, you know, all these unemployed men and women were put to work in 1937. They built the Timberline Lodge. So there's that history as well. And then one more layer. There's the history of African-American laborers, which I think Dick Halloran kind of is a stand-in mm. for, and the history of domestic abuse, which, you know, violent men like uh, Charles or Delbert Grady
0: are a kind of a stand-in for as well. Mm, right, right. And in, in a sense, Jack Torrance as well, because he's he's abusive too, to Wendy and to Danny.
1: Right, right. So you have these, you know, these overlooked histories in the Overlook that are kind of like all playing in to this haunting and it's hard to know exactly like okay so like are the ghosts the aboriginals are the ghosts the laborers who were killed are they you know the the people who were killed at the hands of delbert grady like who is actually actually doing the haunting or is it all of them
0: Yeah, but, you know, that's that's one of the things that's so much fun about this movie, too, is uh, perhaps that, you know, you don't have the answers to it. And uh, it's it seems to kind of make it more a bit more of a maleficent force if, if, if you don't know why they're coming after these people. Right, right.
1: Well, I think it connects the Torrance family to American history writ large. Mm-hmm. you know, in this really interesting way where maybe it is all of this this history bearing down on this one family and, you know, because in, in the novel King mentions, there's a couple parts where he says like, in the overlook, all times were one mm, so it's okay. kind of this like historical melting pot in a way and um, you know, it's, it's something that was raised by Frederick Jameson who's, who's a writer as well who who said that? You know, in in the Shining, in the, in the the movie, Jack Nicholson isn't possessed by evil or the devil or some sort of you know ghost or occult force, but by history, and that's kind of the what's doing the
0: haunting itself. Yeah, it's. I always kind of wonder if he's like he's. We we mentioned yesterday that it seems to be a mix of psychological and supernatural, and that. I never really thought of Jack Torrance as possessed kind of in the same way as I would think of, um, of the girl in the exorcist or something like that, but more kind of just pushed over the edge. Right. Right. You know, he's, yeah, it's like, perhaps that's why he is all, he starts the movie off already as kind of a bit grumpy and uh, not the best dad already because maybe he himself is weak. And f- easily falls prey to to the hotel, and right. They, it's not like they're taking possession of him. Like an exorcist isn't going to help Jack Torrance at any time.
1: Right, right. I think there is that nuance there of the fact that he's psychologically prepped. Yes, or you know, whatever to whatever degree he's going to be possessed, he kind of wants to be possessed.
0: Yeah, he does. He never really seems to mind. <laughs> Yeah, and, right. You know, no, there's never any, any moment when when you think, uh, like, he's calling out for help inside or something like that. Yeah,
1: even Room 237, when he, you know, kisses that, that woman who turns out to be that old woman who's rotting, like, he's obviously freaked out and scared, but he never yeah. tells
0: Wendy or, or Danny about it. Like, he denies that that happened. Right, right, right. And he's uh, very, very enticed before before it's clear that she's a really creepy old lady. Right, right. You know, I think it's
1: important that, you know, it's the Torrance's in, like, the late 70s or 1980 when this happens. The Torrance's journey to the Overlook is really motivated by, you know, this idea of upward mobility. Uh, it's, it's motivated by economics. I think they're, they're motivated by, especially for Jack, the idea of maybe reinventing himself. And they, they share that with a lot of people, like uh, especially a lot a lot of the laborers in the past. But I think there's kind of this idea where maybe at the beginning they almost m- might want to think of themselves as the equals of kind of the the jet setters, the you know all the best people uh, that Stuart Ullman references, the the former kind of occupants of the hotel that were really elite. When in fact, I think they have a lot more in common with, say, the people who built the Timberline Lodge, those unemployed laborers, because as far as I know, Wendy doesn't have a job. Jack has been fired from his teaching job. It's yeah. not spelled out too much in the movie, but it's in the book. And so yeah, like, they also pretty um, they, they, they
0: don't mention this, but uh, that shirt that he's wearing uh, in that scene you alluded to when when uh she's giving him breakfast and it pulls away from the mirror. Um apparently that shirt that he's wearing is from the school he used to teach at.
1: Ah right. So we kind
0: of hint at it, but it's not really a big part of the of the story. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think a key thing that
1: separates the torrences from, say, the Donner Party, or all these people who were led on these journeys for economic reasons to kind of, you know, advance their, their social position in life is the fact that, you know, the Torrances have everything they need and more. They're, they're protected, supremely protected from the natural elements. You know, we see that fireplace. It looks incredibly warm in the Colorado lounge.
0: And they've got all the food they'll ever need for the entire stay that they're there. Well,
1: Dick Halloran makes a note of saying like, you know, 50 rib roasts and and like going through the list of all the food. He said you could eat here for a year and not have the same menu twice. Yeah. Multiple, multiple turkeys and stuff like that. And they also have more space than they could ever use. Like they have an abundance of material uh, goods. And I think this is an interesting point because what they don't have and what ultimately drives them insane is they don't have other people. They don't have community. And I, it's precisely because of the, you know, appurtenances of capital, capitalist abundance, you know, and technology and whatnot, that, you know, Ullman and the hotel management is able to hire this minimal team of three people to maintain the hotel in the winter. It's because they have, you know, radio technology, they have the boiler system, they have the this walk-in fridge where they can preserve the food, they have all this technology that allows them to survive which sets up the conditions by which they ultimately succumb in a different way which is it sets up these conditions of extreme isolation alienation depression insomnia and ultimately insanity
0: yeah and it's it's kind of something worth to to mention that Besides the car trip at the very beginning, I can't really think of a time when you see the three of them all together at the same time. Like you might see combinations of them. Like you'll see Danny and Jack together and you'll see Jack and Wendy together and Wendy and Danny, but you won't really see the three of them together as a family, you know, spending any time together, whether even if they're just, you know, having dinner or something.
1: Well, they, yeah, they fairly quickly become sort of alienated from each other.
0: Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, with with a lack of people, they're not even together as the group that they came in. Right, right.
1: And it's, it's, I think, a pretty powerful irony that the very things that would have saved, say, the Donner Party in the past, you know, material well-being, like a warm house to stay in, Mm. is exactly what causes the Torrance's downfall. Yeah. And I I think... You know, by invoking all of this history, I think The Shining is is a movie which is trying to kind of, on some level, dramatize the myth of social mobility in America. You know, they're like, okay, listen, the Donner Party tried and failed. These laborers tried and failed. All these other people in the past met pretty, you know, gruesome ends. And here's another example of a family who thinks they're going to, you know, rise their station in life and make it, and they don't. Once again, the cycle repeats. To go back to Freud and the uncanny, it repeats, and they fail as well. They succumb.
0: Right, even though they've got all the things that, uh, that perhaps those people going out West could have used most. Right, right. And I think, especially when you look at Jack Torrance,
1: while you know, he's probably led to the overlook overlooked by the prospect of like a better life, of writing that novel and, and furthering his career, I think what really, you know, kind of uh, makes him stay at the, the Overlook and really kind of develop a deep attachment to it is this longing for a sense of belonging, you know, a desire uh, for community. And it, it's kind of in contrast to that that, that Danny and, and Dick Holleran kind of developed this telepathic fellowship as well. Um, I think this, this desire for community... When you know there are such deep forces of alienation going on, I mean, Wendy doesn't seem to have any friends. Jack certainly doesn't really seem to have any friends. Danny doesn't.
0: Yeah, they seem to be perfectly fine with going to stay at this place in isolation for for several months. Well, they that, don't really have any social connections they have to like deal with, right? They yeah. just go. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but uh, it does does seem as something that's kind of uh, it's kind of odd. I mean, maybe there were you know, economic, uh, economic factors going in, but yeah, it, it's odd. Like, I mean, they're going to be spending months. I mean, some of the coldest months of the year just away from their friends. Um, and typically, I mean, if it is the winter, that's also Christmas and things like that, which is typically, you know, you're going to be having parties and gatherings and things like that, but here they are, they're just going to go sequester themselves in isolation. Right. And they do kind of celebrate new years with, Ghosts, basically.
1: Right. I mean, those are the that's the, the time and the, the only time in the movie when you see them with you know any amount of people. Yeah. Um it's it's interesting. Frederick Jameson has written more about this, kind of arguing that you know, there's a reason why Kubrick focused on the 1920s in particular. You know, with that party scene with the photo at the end, you know, 1921 where you see Jack in that photo. And because in the novel, it it actually takes place in the the 40s and kind of the post-war era after World War II. Mm. And Kubrick changed it to the 1920s. And Jameson argues uh, the reason why Kubrick chose the 20s is because, quote, the 20s were the last moment in which a genuine American leisure class led an aggressive and ostentatious public existence, in which an American ruling class projected a class-conscious an unapologetic image of itself and enjoyed its privileges
0: without guilt. Right, much like The Great Gatsby.
1: Yes, yes. And I think the reading into that more, and what Jameson argues is the really disturbing thing about The Shining, is that it exposes that, you know, a lot of the class fantasies of contemporary American society, at least in the 70s and 80s, was about this ideal what he says, quote, is the ideological project to return to the hard certainties of a more visible and rigid class structure. And the reason why Jack Torrance is so willing to prostrate himself to this hotel and and you know its masters is is because at least it offers him a place. Hmm. He might become like Delbert Grady, nothing but a butler. But at least by being this butler, by kind of taking this journey back into the 20s and its class structure, he has a place. And it's disturbing to think that for him, that's more important than anything. Friends, family, even ultimately his novel. Because, you know, if you think about Jack's predicament in that particular point in time, in that consumerist society of the 70s and into the 80s, he is fully responsible for his predicament as the head of the household you know, in this highly individualized society at the time, all of the, you know, responsibility for his success or his failure rests on his shoulders and to some degree, you know, Wendy's. But he, as a kind of, you know, full-blooded male of his time, is going to accept the full responsibility of that. And it's unbearable for him, you know. At least in the 20s and the class structure, If he does accept this lower rank, you know, if he is no more than kind of hired help, at least his failure is explained by the overdetermination of the class structure. He had no chance of rising above his station, so he doesn't have to bear responsibility for failing to do so. And so I think the novel, in a way, becomes a pretense for that journey back into This kind of class structure of the 1920s and for really uh, kind of being able to free himself from the miserable, alienating, depressing responsibility of having to fail and bear the full responsibility for that failure.
0: Yeah cuz I mean he doesn't actually as 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 we know from the the crazy stuff that he writes he doesn't actually get anything done but you kind of think that that was a big reason why they took this job in the first place was that you know well I've been fired from my teaching job at least this way I can kind of try and make things right again and go right and just take my take the time to really get everything I need done to start all over again but yeah he he right away just kind of foregoes all of that
1: Right. And I, I mean, for Kubrick, it kind of makes sense because he was born in 1928. I think he would have a certain amount of familiarity and maybe even nostalgia for the 1920s, much the way like, you know, we would have for the 80s or 90s, where mm-hmm. it's kind of like that that was our childhood. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like the, the movie itself and Jack Torrance and even its relevance for today, I think it it really exposes that with... You know the forces of economic deprivation, isolation people will and you know the depression and and all the mental and physical ailments that go along with that, people will ultimately revert back and desire a more rigid hierarchy if it affords them a place and You see this I think in America with today with with Trump supporters who you know seem to have this desire to go back to maybe Reagan America. Where you know they weren't necessarily materially that well off, but at least they had a cultural place that you know they don't feel they have now, or even on the left with a lot of the protesters, I mean a lot of the you know kind of i I don't think a lot of the kind of particular movements that were coming out of it were necessarily super democratic I mean there was a lot of talk about kind of identitarian hierarchies and you know uh stuff like that mm-hmm. but people were willing to kind of go along with this cuz it offered them a place
0: right i mean so much of what people do is just about um finding community and finding common ground and things like that i've i've read about how um you know like things like islamic terror and things like that kind of the, the religion aspect of it is just something that everyone can really relate to rather than the actual sort of uh, zealous, fervent zealousism of of the actual religion. And it's all just part of community and belonging. Right, right. And for the West, I think this, you know, this lockdown
1: moment we're in with COVID, I think it's, it's a very scary phenomenon where you have a lot of people at home suffering isolation and, and you know, depression and whatnot who are, Uniquely vulnerable to these sorts of ideologies,
0: yeah, certainly, and especially now it's kind of the same time period as uh, as the shining too I mean the winter, so to speak they yeah. don't really they don't really ever say what specific month or anything it is, but they they're, the overlook is closing for the winter, right, right, and I guess this is also a time when. Uh, it's cold out, it gets dark early, and it's it's a bit easier to kind of fall prey to certain aspects of depression and loneliness.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think that's another, just another reason why The Shining is still relevant today. Um, you know, on the topic of, of that photo at the end, we kind of referenced it a few times, um, what's your take on that? It's always been a, a point of contention amongst fans and, you know, a lot of critics took issue with it. The fact that, you know, the very end of the movie, unlike in the novel, ends with this photo from 1921, July 4th, of of Jack Torrance seemingly reincarnated in this photo.
0: I've always just kind of taken it as evil is always going to endure. Evil will always be there. Um And I guess it was sort of um, portrayed in the in this in the physical being of Jack Torrance in this movie, right? Right. how How I took it because that guy, presumably in 1980, is dead. But you know, we we just saw Jack Torrance in the movie, and now Jack Torrance is dead because he froze to death. But that doesn't mean that he or evil is gone, so to speak. So it's always it's always going to be there. I think that's how I have always taken that photo. Well, there is this uh, other
1: theory, uh, you know, they call it the absorption theory, I think where it's like, uh, Jack by, you know, attempting to do the hotel's bidding and basically sacrificing himself for it is then rewarded by being
0: retroactively placed within the hotel's history. Mm, right. So he kind of maybe becomes a bit, uh, he becomes one of the the hotel spirits maybe. Right. And that
1: way like that's the same thing arguably that happened with Delbert Grady. That's why there's he's different from Charles Grady. Mm. By doing the hotel's bidding, he becomes this new figure who's part of the hotel's past. Yeah. And gets to live out his days as this butler named Delbert Grady who gets to, you know, take part as a butler, as a servant of all these 1920s elites, but at least it gives him his rewards in his
0: mind. Well, and I know we've been talking about The Shining with with no real reference to Dr. Sleep, um, right. but, but that would explain why—it's why, why uh, it's not Jack Nicholson, but that would explain why Jack Torrance does appear as one of the overlooked specters in Dr. Sleep, so I could maybe get on board with that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and Kubrick himself said that there's this great Japanese documentary that was unearthed a couple of years ago, where you know this guy traveled to Elstree Studios and, and interviewed Vivian Kubrick and at one point talks to Stanley on the phone and he's like just in a very disarming way says oh yeah could you tell me what the ending of the shining means and Kubrick was just like very overtly he said quote well it's a, it was supposed to suggest a kind of evil reincarnation cycle where he's part of the hotel's history just as uh, in the men's room when he's uh, talking to to Grady the former uh, caretaker who says to him, "You're the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker." Yeah. Quote. So it's like I think he kind of gets at a similar idea that either retroactively he's placed in the past, or he's always been there in somewhat in some way, um, and he's kind of
0: being reincarnated. Do you think that? matters as far as interpretation goes because it's one thing for you and me to have kind of differing opinions but what happens when the filmmaker or mastermind kind of comes in with their own take you know for instance i think um when when you hear about christopher nolan kind of putting it to bed for instance that yeah no at the end of inception it's it's real you know you don't need to talk about this anymore i mean is that is that kind of the, the explanation everyone should just accept? Or is that something that you can just say, well, that's just his, his opinion. We can keep on debating it as long as we want.
1: See, I think if the filmmaker has done his or her job, then there's enough in the film to be able to argue otherwise. Mm. And so even if Nolan says, yeah, it's real, there's enough in the movie because it's well-designed an Inception for you to say, "Well, I don't think it is for this and this and this reason, you yeah, know? and I think the shiny is very much the same. I mean, there's so much that you could kind of draw on to make your case that this or that is is real or not real. I mean, I found it really interesting, for example, that um you know there's that key moment when uh Jack is let out of that kind of uh storage locker by Delbert Grady, and that's the first moment where. You know, a, a ghost supposedly like interferes and and interacts with the material world.
0: Yeah, he's actually able to physically loosen and open the door.
1: Right, and it's interesting that I think at that moment both Wendy and and Danny and Jack are sleeping. Yeah, and you know it 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 kind of opens up the idea that maybe somehow. This is either a product of their dreams, or it is a dream and it's not real. He got out another way. Um, Roger Ebert pointed out too that the film seemed to kind of lack a reliable narrator, mm-hmm. because at some point in the movie, you know, you could call into question the the kind of sanity and the reliability of every member of the Torrance family, and so you could make the case that
0: is is anything I'm seeing real. In a movie where a bunch of weird stuff is happening, I think it's maybe forgivable to not have a reliable narrator. I think it's
1: actually to the film's great merit. I do too,
0: because you can also just, you know, you can speculate and think, well, maybe he kind of just opened it himself and is just having more crazy visions of ghosts.
1: Yeah, and there there have been people who've kind of made that case that there's multiple ways he could have gotten out. There's even someone who made the case that actually Danny wanted jack out he led him into the maze because danny wanted to kill jack Mm. he thought that was the only way he could him and wendy could escape and the only way this evil could kind of be stopped is to actually lead jack into the maze and and bring him to his ultimate demise which again i don't really buy but i think it's interesting that that interpretation can be made
0: i think that kind of almost gives a little bit too much credit to danny because danny is very much just a five-year-old kid Right, right, it doesn't and really seem to have much of a say in matters. It doesn't really seem to have much of a determination, or you know, what like it doesn't really seem to really spearhead any decision or anything like that. It's it's all it's either Jack or Wendy. You know, he's kind of just as a little kid, like just going going along with whatever happens.
1: Well, and also I think it would be easy to give too much credit to this. You know, the Shine this ability and you know use it to explain this or that and that Danny is really kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes but i mean the shining is clearly shown to be a limited ability i mean dick holloran goes to his ultimate demise because he can't see and foretell that jack torrance is going to kill him as soon as right. he gets in so it's it's like there is a clear limit to this ability and you know Danny might have the shine more than Hulleron for example but it is it's not just this godlike ability to do whatever you want
0: sure sure it's not going to it's it's not going to make you invincible
1: right right yeah well this has been an incredible discussion Mike uh, I just feel yeah. like there's so many layers we've kind of peeled back and hopefully gotten to some sort of uh interesting point um with with this discussion it's definitely the longest and most in-depth discussion we've had of any film uh, so far.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think there's nothing nothing new about having a lot to say about a Kubrick film. Um, that's what's a lot of fun about watching Kubrick is there's so much that you can, uh, so much that you can really peel back and discuss, and uh, it's one of the things that makes Kubrick such a great filmmaker.
1: Yeah, that even just one film can you know lead to so much discussion and and analysis and. Um, yeah. I really don't feel like i've I've ruined the film either, which is not you know there's definitely some films where if you look behind the curtain enough, it really ruins the effect the film had initially.
0: yeah, yeah, and i I think i, I think as well that these movies are much more fun when you don't and when you don't consider their sequels too like I, I don't really put much stock in 2010, the year we make contact either. Right, right. Because I I still watch 2001, and if you kind of, if you look at the way they explain the end events of that movie, you just think, well, that's much less satisfying than perhaps talking about it with someone else. And so I think a lot of times it's just best to sort of talk about these movies in a vacuum.
1: Yes, yes. And I think, you know, there's always going to be different versions made of things or references. You know, Kubrick didn't have control over that necessarily uh though i think you know when when stephen king made his 1997 version i think kubrick made him pay like 1.5 million for the rights <laughs> like he 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 owned the rights and he sold them back to him because he was kind of a little annoyed i guess by king's criticism but yeah, yeah. you know there's uh, king's novel is always going to be great i think kubrick's version is always going to be great and anything else that happens after that it's just kind of, it is what it is. It's never yep. going to equal the impact of these
0: first great pieces of art. And people always like to pigeonhole themselves into things. Like when they say, oh, well, which do you like, the book or the movie? And you think, well, why can't I like both? Exactly. Yeah, you I've know. never
1: understood the not liking both. Yeah, Like A Clockwork Orange is another great example.
0: Yeah, great, yeah. That's, great that's book, great Exactly. Yeah. I've, that's one where I have, I have read the book and I've seen the movie as well. And yeah, they're both, they're both great, even though that's another one, which I think that's worth a, that could be worth a Now It's a Dark episode as well. Uh, but that's another one where the, the movie differs quite differently from the book as far as the ending is concerned. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Tim, and I hope that you have a wonderful new year and, and really God willing that everything will just get better in 21
1: yes uh, whatever you do don't go slowly insane trapped inside (laughs) your home or hotel or wherever you are and and whatever you do please don't
0: kill your family yeah (laughs) (laughs) always important advice always important also important remember to find us almost wherever podcasts are found and you can go find us on youtube but now it's dark and give us a like and a subscription as well Absolutely, and stay tuned for more. Uh, Whether COVID continues
1: or not, we're going to keep our discussions going, so there will be more Now It's Dark in the near future. Stay tuned. In a weird way, it's like that might be the ultimate sort of commentary of the film. It's like this desire for meaning, which, you know, 2001, you literally get like a blank slate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think you guys are going to go deep on this
0: movie, right? Yeah. But, you know, nobody's ever scratched the surface. Yeah. And Kubrick's dead, so we, we're not getting any more out of him about it. You know what I mean? It's, it's funny. Yeah, I don't know. But makes just, just even this small discussion we're having, I want to watch it again. Because that's the thing about it. You can watch it once a year.
1: Right.
0: And it doesn't get old.